Today's scripture reading is from Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks again, Grace. So, uh, so today is what we call Vision Sunday. We do this uh, every year, the Sunday after Labor Day, we revisit the vision of Christ Presbyterian Church, which is as follows. As a family united in Christ and led by Scripture, we at Christ Presbyterian Church exist as partakers in a movement of God's kingdom that offers spiritual life, public faith, mercy and justice, and the integration of faith and work to the people, communities, institutions, and churches of Greater Nashville and through Nashville to the world. So, so typically we will use this Sunday to uh, sort of point our eyes forward to the various goals that we would have for the coming ministry year. Ministry year typically begins uh, with the school calendar around September. Uh, and we, we do have goals. We, we are going to have goals this coming year. We're, we're, you know, one of which is underway right now. We are interviewing candidates for the person who will be the pastor of uh, CPC location number three. Right now we have two locations, one here and one in town right across the street from Vanderbilt. Uh, we're we're going to, one of our goals this year is to identify the pastor and also the location uh, for that third CPC. Another one of our goals is to participate in helping get church plants that are not coming out of CPC, but that are part of other groups and other tribes and so on, uh, going in Nashville. Because remember, we're not a church that is interested in building its own empire. We want to be a church not only for ourselves, but for all churches and all neighborhoods in Nashville. And so, so we want to participate in what God is doing through other tribes uh, as well, through contribution and so on. Uh, another goal this year is to continue our trajectory that we've already begun in applying uh, the, the principles in the book Growing Young, which was put out uh, recently by Fuller Seminary. And essentially, the summary of it is this. The children and, and youth, the, the, the kids and the students of our church, they're not the future of the church. They are the church. And, and so, for that reason, we're, we're seeking more and more and more to integrate uh, the influence of, of kids and, and teenagers in the life of our church. Um, you know, last week, you might remember, Prayers of the People was, was prayed by three children uh, here in, in this room. And, and uh, Grace, uh, you know, a, 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 a teenager read our Scripture today. We're, we're just, just look for more and more of that in the coming year. Another goal is to launch the long-awaited CPC men. There's going to be more on this, but we've got a very… Um, you know, life-giving women's ministry, and we've, we've determined, the leadership at Christ Press has determined that now is the time to start thinking about what it would mean to formally organize a, a men's ministry so that there's a greater opportunity for, for guys to connect with each other uh, through CPC. We've got our Five Friends Initiative, which I'll talk about in a little bit, a little bit later. We're going to continue to 
do all the things that we're doing. We're going to try to refine all the things that we're doing, including our, our three-pronged uh, missional efforts of, of, of mercy and justice, uh, you know, contributing to mercy and justice concerns in Nashville, of integrating faith and work and helping especially Christians to do that, and, 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 and public faith initiatives. So, there's plenty of goals that we're going to have, but I'm not going to talk about those anymore. Um, because instead of, instead of pointing our eyes forward, my, my pastoral instinct uh, is to point our eyes backwards um, with a vision of, 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 of what was first done and the life that was first lived out uh, among the earliest followers of Jesus in order to inform the way that we move forward in our own context. And... Um, you know, so, so the, I guess the question to ask before I get into the various thoughts today is, what is the point of growth if we don't have health? What is the point of being an influential community if we are also not a humble community with, with deep gospel character? What is the point of being part of an external movement without a, a, a healthy, forward-moving interior life? Uh, and so, I'm really pressed in, in my own spirit to focus on health today, being a healthy community. And Acts chapter 2 might be one of the best uh, and one of the clearest passages in the Scriptures that give us the signs of a healthy Christ community. You know, you, you look for vital signs, right? When you're looking for health, you, there should be an appetite there, there should be a pulse, there should be breath, there should be reflexes, there should be a certain level of energy. Well, he, he, here are a few vital signs that, um, that I want us to focus on this morning as we, as we think forward. Uh, and uh, I'm going to put them in four categories. One book, five friends, every neighbor, and one leader. Okay, so let's start with one book. In verse 42, uh, you'll see that the early Christians, the first followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is essentially the teaching that we find now in the, the 66 books that we know as the Holy Bible. And uh, you may have noticed in the, the membership vows um, you know, that the, the part of what we ask people who are, you know, sort of tethering themselves to our church community to do is to tether themselves to the Scriptures and to tether themselves to Jesus. And one of the promises that all of our new members made this morning at both locations and in all services is a promise to live as becomes a follower of Christ and to submit ourselves, to follow and to submit. And so, so what if somebody during a new member, you know, ceremony, during one of these services, raised their hand? This hasn't happened yet to my knowledge, but, but what if somebody raised their hand and said, hey, can we negotiate that? Because Pastor Todd, you know, Pastor Todd was the one leading the, the new member reception today. <coughs> it really depends on what you mean by follower, and it really depends on what you mean by submit, because, you know, if I'm being honest, can I be honest with you? I'm on board with about 90% of what Jesus and the Bible teach. That's pretty good, right? That's like an A minus, B plus. I mean, that's a really good grade. So, so can we negotiate 
you know, some of this follower-submit stuff. And, you know, Pastor Todd, really the the trouble that I have is that that I really love everything I've seen in the teaching of Jesus. I love everything I've seen in the teaching of the Bible, except that part about forgiving people. Except that part about loving your enemy, that doesn't make any sense. Except that part about not judging people because I'm really into partisan politics. Except that part about giving generous amounts of money away. Except that part about making the concerns of the poor my concern. Except that part or those parts about sex. Except that part about honoring your parents. So, 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 those, so those parts, yeah, you know, that's kind of part of the 10%, but the other 90%. I'm all there. So, can we negotiate those other things? And Pastor Todd, being a good pastor, is going to say, well, if, if your truth is different than biblical truth, then, then really what, what we're saying is, you know, and, and, and if you're saying if you're, you're good with these parts but not with those parts, what, you, what you're really saying is, I don't want to follow Jesus. I want Jesus to be my personal assistant. I want him to be my personal assistant. I want Jesus to be my consultant. I don't want him to be my king. So, so really what you're saying, Pastor Todd would tell you, is you want Jesus to follow you wherever you want to go and, and support whatever your agenda is for your life. And Pastor, Pastor Todd would say, you know, that 90%, that's where you already agree with him. That 10% is, is where you want to sort of, you know, dismiss him, but it doesn't work that way. Because the word that's used here is devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and, and to the fellowship and so on. Devotion is, is an all-in word. And so the moment we say, don't give me doctrine, don't give me all that Bible stuff, just give me Jesus, just strip it down to the basics, is it, the moment we become culpable of a fallacy because it is utterly inconsistent to say, I follow Jesus, but I, don't, I, I want to follow the whole Jesus, but I don't want to follow the whole Bible. Because to say that I don't want to follow the whole Bible is to dismiss the very book upon which Jesus based his entire life. Every bit of his life was based on it. He is the fulfillment of it. He is the prophets that were, that were spoken of in the Old Testament. He is the priests. He is the kings. He is the sacrificial system. He is all of this. He did not come to be a personal assistant or a consultant to anyone. He came to be the king. And the way that he rules is through his word. That's what he said. You know, Luke 24, it says the beginning with Moses, all the way back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way back to the beginning, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and so on, beginning all the way back in the Old Testament, Jesus explained what all of it had to say about Him. You can't separate yourself from Scripture and presume to be following the whole Christ. Or John chapter 1. I'm a New Testament Christian. Okay, here's what the, how the New Testament starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Jesus is so inseparable from Scripture that, that He's actually called 
Scripture, in a manner of speaking. He is the Word. Or Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted multiple times by the devil, and every time He responds to a temptation, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. He contradicts those tempting voices, those, those serpentine voices that say, did God really say? Oh, you can eat this fruit, it's tasty, you'll be like God. Well, first and foremost, He already was God, but, but, but second of all, Jesus Himself is responding. It is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. So, so to say I, 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 I'm all in with 90% of the Bible, uh, I'm, I'm not in with 10%, is to categorically and 100% dismiss the very basis upon which Jesus built His entire life. And so, you, if you go back a few verses to verse 37, we see that Peter is preaching Jesus Christ from chiefly the Old Testament Scriptures. And it says that as the people were listening, they were cut to the heart. The Scriptures cut them. The Scriptures carved them into something different than what they were before. And so, I brought my pocket knife, and you know, you you bounty hunters out there, you're going to say that's a wimpy knife, but I'm here to tell you this is a genuine leatherman, so don't mess with it. It's pretty heavy, actually. Um, But say I wanted to, say I looked at this blade, let's just imagine this blade was five times bigger, and I don't like the way the blade looks. I don't like the shape. I don't like the aesthetic of it. And so I say to myself, you know what, I'm going to reshape this blade. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carve it up, and I'm going to use my finger to carve it up. What's going to happen? I'm going to get cut. Uh, this thing is not going to change shape at all. It's going to cut me, and I'm going to bleed. Why? Because this is stronger material than my finger, and it is sharper material than my finger. It's it's like trying to punch an oak tree thinking I'm going to hurt the oak tree. You know, you ignore the law of gravity, the law of gravity is still there. And and so so what happens here in Acts chapter 2 is as the Word of God, the whole Word of God, the whole Christ is preached, and the people are submissively following and, and, and yielding themselves to be cut by the Scripture, because the only alternative is for you to try to cut the Scripture up like one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, did. He took the parts of the Bible he didn't like, and he took scissors to it. But when we, when we try to cut the Scriptures, what's going to happen is the Scripture is going to end up cutting us. They're going to end up cutting us. We try to judge the Scriptures, they're going to end up judging us. It never works in the reverse. It's never a successful endeavor. God doesn't have to do anything. God can be fast asleep and His judgment will still come at us in full force because when we go against the Scripture, we go against ourselves. That's what the judgment of God is. It's God saying, okay, have it your way. I'll check back with you in a little while to see how it's working out for you. But let's have it your way. That's judgment. The whole, the whole irony of it is, I just want to be free from that 10% when what you're saying is, I want to go behind the prison bars. And you don't realize that's what you're saying. You're saying you want to cut up the Scripture, but what you're really saying is, I'm going to put myself at risk of getting cut up. But, but, but here's the beauty of it in the reverse. 
Okay, before I move on, just say this quickly. Forgot this in my notes. You know, we may say this. There's a part of me that says this. Can, can we move past this? Can we move past, you know, the doctrine stuff? Can we move past being such serious Bible people? And it's hard to find a serious Bible person today because biblical illiteracy and, 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 and biblical disengagement is an all-time high, especially in our part of the world. But that's, another, that's another part of the story. But, but isn't it wrong, though? Isn't it insensitive? Isn't it just so anti-American to try to convert people? But that statement, it's wrong to try to convert people, is an attempt to convert people. <laughs> to a certain point of view, to a certain dogma, to a certain doctrine. The doctrine being it's wrong to say that you're right about something and others should listen to what you're saying. See, there are all kinds of inconsistencies here. So, I want to be straight with you. I want to be honest with you. If you're here exploring Christianity, if you're here exploring Christ's prayers, I'm just going to be honest straight up with my agenda. My agenda is to convert you. You bring your friends here, at your own risk, because my agenda every time is to convert them. I want to convert them to grace. I want to convert them to, 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 to this message of Jesus Christ about whom the whole Scripture speaks. I want to convert your friends. I want to convert you to a life that, is, that, 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 that even though it pressures you with doctrine, you know, the, the moment you submit to the pressure of, of, of what the Scriptures are saying, you must submit to all of me, you realize the pressure is lifted off of you. Because what is the message of Scripture? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Your judgment day, it's over in the past. The only thing left for you in Christ is a glorious, free, forgiven, liberated, shame-free future. So, that's what the Bible is trying to pressure you into entering into. You know, that's the whole irony, the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. The more you submit to the pressure to surrender to the whole Scripture and the whole Christ, the more unpressured your life becomes, and the more liberated you are to live in true freedom and grace. The law no longer sits over you like a, like a hammer, like Mark Twain's nightmare, but instead it becomes the path of life, the path to health. It was that word again. But back to the knife… Just like the knife in comparison to my finger, the Scriptures, this Tim Keller-ism on this, the Scriptures are harder and they are sharper than you are. And to, to, to try to cut up the Scriptures, to try to cut out the parts you don't like, you're going to end up cutting yourself. But the beauty is, if you surrender to the Scriptures and yield to them so that they cut you and reshape you and reform you, you will become more solid and sharp. How about that? You know, Augustine said it this way, without the Word of God, what am I but a guide to my own self-destruction? And G.K. Chesterton, I love this one, the purpose of an open mind is the same as the purpose of an open mouth, to eventually shut it on something solid. You know, when you let the Scriptures cut you, you become more solid, you become more sharp, you become 
the best kind of dangerous. You become strong by becoming dependent. You become powerful by falling down on your weak knees before the throne of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whose chief mission is to save you from yourself. It's awesome. So, one book, five friends, okay? So, five is is a good number. It seemed like a, a sensible number that if we're going to be a family united in Christ, as our, as our vision statement says, then, then part of what we want to be doing as a leadership community is cultivating all kinds of different environments that, that can serve many purposes, one of which is as on-ramps for people to connect with people and, 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 and foster true, real community with one another. It says in verse 40, 44, they were together and they had all things in common. Verse 46, every day they, were, they met together in the temple in their homes. I'm just asking you for once a week, for starters. Um, but every day they're meeting together because surely they were remembering what God said all the way back to the beginning before Adam and Eve made a wreck of things. Before things went wrong with the world, God still spoke one negative word into paradise. It is not good for that man right there, or any human being for that matter, to be alone. Alone, not good. You know, Charles Reich uh, wrote this book called The Greening of America, and here's one of the things he said in that book. America is one vast, terrifying anti-community. Friendship has been coated over with a layer of impenetrable artificiality as men strive to live roles designed for them. Protocol, competition, hostility, and fear have replaced the warmth of the circle of affection, the warmth of the circle of affection, which might sustain man against a hostile universe. You know, Thoreau put it this way, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. Now, Michael Scott Horton made a similar you know, comment about the typical American church experience. He says, many of us drive to church, listen to the sermon, say hello to our circle of friends, and return home without ever having really experienced community. And what Jesus has done by giving us us this beautiful thing, this beautiful resource called the church, which is also the bride of Christ, He has given us a, a, a remedy that, 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 that if my life, you know, from, from the world's standards is at risk of loneliness, I have a community now where I really have the option of never, ever having to be alone again, because the church will take anyone, anyone. Your history here will not count against you. Your jacked-upness, whatever it is, your anxiety and depression, the fact that you have oodles of regrets in the way that you parented somebody, the fact that you, that you walk around with rage all the time, the, the fact that whatever, you're, you're messed up in whatever way, the fact that your career is only half of what you hoped or dreamed it would be by now, that doesn't count against you. In here, in, in ways that it might count against you outside of the church of Jesus Christ, we will take anyone. You know, the, the, the church of Christ in, in many ways is an island of misfit toys. 
That doesn't mean like the strong and powerful people are outside of the church. It just means the people who are most awake are the ones who've come into the church and into Christ because everyone's jacked up. Everyone. You're going to die. You are. You may be killing it right now, but you're going to be gone. Anne Lamott was right. 100 years from now, all new people. You will be replaced. I will be replaced. My great-grandchildren probably won't know my name. And yet, Jesus will know my name. Jesus will remember my name. Eugene Peterson put it this way, one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, are instead of my, us instead of me. And so, it says here, not only devote yourself, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it said they devoted themselves to the fellowship. The word there is koinonia, which means friendship, nothing less than friendship, but also so much more than, than our idea of friendship. It literally means generous friendship, generous relating. And that can come on several different levels, but basically what koinonia is, is the embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ among one another. And that means there are three kinds of people that we both want to have in our lives and be in the lives of other people. Let's say our five friends. We all need Nathans. Nathans are the one, as Nathan did with David, who will faithfully catch us in our transgressions and restore us gently, like it says in Galatians Six, a true friend, a koinonia friend is not a codependent enabler. A, a, a koinonia friend is not someone who says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I'm okay, you're okay, when, when neither of us is okay, if that's what we're saying. You know, as Oscar Wilde once wrote, a true friend stabs you in the front. Not in the back, but in the front. Not as with a sword to punish, but as with a scalpel to surgically heal. We all need Nathans, and we want to find people that we can be those gentle and yet very much truth-telling Nathans in their lives as well. That's part of what real community is. Another one is Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the SOE in our midst. That's the one who, when we are afraid, he's going to remind us of the assurances of Christ and His promises. When we're lonely, Barnabas is the one who's going to put the embrace of Jesus around us with his own arms. When we're ashamed, Barnabas is the one who's going to remind us of the kindness of Jesus that leads us to repentance. It's not our repentance that leads God to be kind to us. It's God's kindness that leads us to repent. Barnabas is going to remind us of that. And whoever the Barnabas is, when we're hurting, that's the person who's going to sweep in and love us and be the first responder. A lot of Barnabases in this community. We all need to have them, and we are all called to be them. Another one is John. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there stood Jesus' mother Mary and, and Jesus' best friend, probably, John. And, and he looks at his mother, who's probably thinking, what am I going to do without my son, who is also my Savior? And he looks at his mom, and he says, 
from this point forward, this man is going to be your son. And John, from this point forward, this woman is going to be your mother. There's this radical hospitality. It's, it's spoken of in a parallel passage in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, where it says, no one had any need. No one had any need inside the church. That included communal needs. Yeah, I remember this amazing story I heard a single woman from the church tell about how she was having dinner with, with a couple friend of hers, and this particular woman's life circumstances made it very likely that she was going to spend the rest of her life unmarried. And she was confiding in them her struggle with, with, with just wondering, what's it going to be like to be, you know, into my, you know, later years and alone? Am I going to be lonely? And on the spot, that husband and wife said to her, there is a room in our house where you can live for the rest of your life. And there's, there's no expiration date on that offer. Where can you find that? Can you find that at your, 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 your office? Can you find that kind of love at your office? Can you find that kind of love in your neighborhood? Can you find that kind of love at an SEC football game? Can you find that kind of love in your bourbon collection? Can you? We have such small vision sometimes. When, 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 when such a robust life together is right before us, every neighbor is the next one. Notice in verse 45 how it says they shared. They were a community where everyone shared. They shared money. They shared things. They shared their homes. They shared their lives. Verse 47, all of them, 100% of them live from a place of what it says is a generous heart. Everyone saw themselves as one of the, one of the breadwinners for the community. And this isn't like ancient communism, by the way. All the giving was voluntary. None of it was coerced. All of it was voluntary. They had private property and everything. This is some ancient version of communism. But what this is, is a life of radical voluntary generosity where even the 12-year-olds see themselves as breadwinners as soon as they take that first $20 bill for babysitting. So, I've got some good news and bad news for you. So, <laughs> there's this thing called the 80-20 rule in American churches where you can just assume that 80% of, of the load of the church is going to be carried by 20% of the people monetarily as well as just volunteer hours and everything. So, the good news is that CPC is ahead of the curve, better than average. We're more like uh, 25% you know, carrying the load for the 80%. The bad news is we're still way behind where they were. Still way behind. You know, the biblical principle is this, the more you have, the more you give. And yet, we, we find ourselves, every American church, we find ourselves in this predicament. There are 12-year-old boys and girls who give 10, 15% of their babysitting money and their Chick-fil-A money and millionaires who give nothing. That means that there are millionaires, 
being ministered to by the dollars of 12-year-olds who work at Chick-fil-A. What that means is you've got to cut that little part that you can't love God and money at the same part out of your little 10% that you, that, you, that you don't like about what the Bible and Jesus teach. You've got to step up or deal with the fact that 12-year-olds are carrying the weight of the breadwinner in ways that you're not inside the family of God because you have a vision for other things, for vacation homes and your bourbon collection and your retail therapy and your fourth car. Is it a shameful thing for a Christian to be rich and live in luxury? No. Solomon lived in all of his splendor. You know, the, the, the two guys who bought the tomb for Jesus and, 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 and put his body there, you know, Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus were loaded. There's nothing wrong with having money and enjoying what God gives to you. But there is something seriously wrong with thinking that it's all yours and that you just get to spend it all on yourselves. It's a serious repentance, repentance issue for 75% of our people. Our budget, by all estimates, could be $30 million. Do, do you know what we could do with $30 million? You know the dent that could be made for the kingdom of God with $30 million, but it's not even, like, it's not even about that. I don't need your money. The church is in better financial shape than it's ever been. I am taken care of marvelously. It's not about that. God is not after your money. He owns everything. He already owns it. It's not like He needs to get it back from you. He's after your heart, and this is one chief indicator of where your heart is, where your treasure is. That's where your heart is, where your fantasies go, where your money goes, where your time goes, with the least amount of effort. That is, behold your God. But it's not just to take care of one another that, 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 that we're talking about. Because it says in Acts 2.47 that the people of Jesus were enjoying the favor of all the people, of the whole community, of the cities in which they lived, such that if, if Christians were to disappear from their cities, the neighbors, the, 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 the non-Christian neighbors would be profoundly sad. What are we going to do? What's our city going to do without the Christians? How are we going to clean up from hurricanes and floods without the Christians? How are we going to take care of all these orphans and widows without the Christians? How are we going to do it? That was the dynamic. You guys have some weird beliefs, virgin birth, resurrection, but man, you love people well. There's something that really resonates about that. You know, first century Rome, second and third century Rome as well, the people of the book became an unstoppable force, not through power plays, not through partisan politics, but through persuasion. They lived the best life. They lived the most beautiful life relative to all the other comparisons. They lived out the best philosophy and most life-giving philosophy of life in comparison to all the others. 
They were not only the best kinds of friends to their neighbors, they were the best kinds of enemies. Why? Because they were people of the book. And the book says, love your enemies just as I have loved you. Rodney Stark, a church historian, said that Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed a far higher status than women in the Greco-Roman world. So that was one outcome. And then Dionysius, more of an ancient historian uh, who wrote about the plagues around A.D. 260 as a direct observer to what happened in Rome when the plagues hit. Dionysius wrote, Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. They were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors. Many in nursing and in curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Tertullian wrote about the early Christians' emphasis on orphan care and, and the elderly and visiting those in prison. Emperor Julian, who was no friend of Christianity, wrote in a frustrated letter to his friend, these Christians, they, they keep growing and growing and growing. It's like they're going to take over Rome. And the secret to their success is that they love the Romans better than we do. They're making government unnecessary. What are we to do about this? You know, Bonhoeffer said that the church is the, the church is the only, I'm sorry, the church is only the church when it exists for others. And it's best the church has always been this. The church has always been on the forefront of abolition efforts, of orphan care, of health care, of race relations, of addiction recovery, and so on. And you better believe when, 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 when hurricanes happen, the first to come and the last to leave are going to be the people of the book. They're going to be the people of Jesus. They're going to be people who bring five friends with them to help those in distress in, in, in much the same way that Christ Pres did in 2010 when, when, when the church was hit with the flood and, and was stripped of resources and still opened up its doors to be an outpost of care and compassion to the whole city of Nashville. And so my urging is let's keep doing that. Whether you're a millionaire or whether you're a 12-year-old, let's keep doing that together. Nearly 40% of our resources go out so that Jesus can continue to bring people in, not necessarily into our church, but into His kingdom and into the life of God. What a rich vision. Let's live it. Let's keep doing that. Lastly, one leader, which points us to this table and to the cross where He was cut and where He bled out so that he could have us as his friends. He's the true Nathan, the true Barnabas, the true John, who loved his neighbor as himself. He didn't just donate 10%. He donated all of it, literally liquidated everything so that he could have us and so there could always be a seat for us at his table, so we could always belong. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, be our one leader from one book, and give us Koinonia friends, give us Nathans and Barnabases and Johns, and give us the grace to be that for somebody as well. And Lord, lead us as people of the book to love every neighbor as well. 
turn the world upside down through your weak, broken, beloved daughters and sons. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.